Good morning, and please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And please stand with me for God's Word. Today what we're going to see in Acts 18, 1 through 17, is how Jesus encourages his servants. Very common for people who are serving Jesus to encounter discouragement, and even doubt, and even fear. So we have the privilege today of hearing the Word of God, and then really looking into how Jesus encourages his servants. Acts 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would change us by your spirit through your word today. All for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. What we see very clearly in this passage is Jesus himself encouraging Paul. We see that Jesus encourages his discouraged servants so they would persevere in his work. If you're serving Jesus, if you're wanting with your whole heart to be wrapped up in, in doing his will, you're going to encounter discouragement at times. You're going to encounter even doubt at times and even fear. It's very common. Now we've been going through 17 chapters in the book of Acts so far. We've, we've looked at every verse. Uh, I preach expositionally here. We go verse by verse, and we're running now into chapter 18, where Jesus is encouraging Paul, and, and we have seen all the way through the book of Acts this continuing story of Jesus using his witnesses for his purposes, how he calls them and empowers them and heals and purifies and scatters and stretches and sends and chooses and speaks and He's the one who opens hearts. 
Now, most recently, we were in chapter 17, and that was about building bridges. First 15 verses were showing us Paul's courageous proclamation of the gospel. We saw five distinguishing marks of that proclamation, that he was courageous, that he was committed to giving the word of God, that God brought about converts, that people came to faith in Christ. But there were many more critics. There were many more enemies to the gospel. What we saw there is the church supporting its own, the church working together for the gospel, a great model for the church. And then verses 16 through 34, we saw last week a blueprint for building gospel bridges, that everywhere Paul went, he would build bridges to the gospel. He would build bridges to Jesus, and sometimes people would blow those bridges up. A lot of times they would reject them, but he, wherever he went, wherever people were, he unmasked their foolish idolatry. He told them they were going after false gods. He told them the truth about their spiritual condition. And he didn't just leave them in that condition. Then he revealed the true God. He revealed what God is really like. And in Athens, here they are worshiping false gods. Here they are a city full of idols. And he's very clear about the fact that they were worshiping idols. But then he said, look, I am going to tell you about the one true God. I'm going to tell you what he's like. And it's, I'm going to give you his word. And it's going to explain to you what he's like. And through it all, what we saw was that Paul was trusting God's perfect sovereignty, the providence of God in bringing people to faith because there were many people, doesn't matter how good Paul was at at presenting the truth, there were many people that rejected it. There were many people that wouldn't go along with it and really reviled and blasphemed against God. And now we come into chapter 18 where Jesus is encouraging Paul and where we see this truth that Jesus encourages his Scourge servants so that they would persevere in his work. That's what he wants to do in your life today. Think of whatever discouragement you are encountering as you serve Jesus, whatever doubts you might be battling, whatever fear might be present, Jesus wants to encourage you, and we see in this passage how he does it. How exactly does he do it? I want you to notice the first thing in verses one through five how Jesus encourages his servants, the first way he does it is through faithful friends, through co-workers in the gospel, through kindred spirits for Christ. Verse one tells us that Paul left Athens, which was the philosophical center of the Roman Empire, and he goes to Corinth, which was the political and commercial center of Greece. It's 50 miles away, it's a three-day journey, and it's strategically located. The city was strategically located on an isthmus connecting northern and southern Greece. Corinth was known for its pottery industry. You might have heard of Corinthian vases or vases, however you pronounce it. Uh, They were known for their metal manufacture. You might have heard of Corinthian bronze. And they were known for carpet weaving, which you haven't heard of. Corinth had an interesting history. They had led the rebellion of Greek cities against Rome, and so at one point in time, the Roman Senate said, we are going to destroy Corinth, and they made good on that promise. In 146 BC, they destroyed the city. It was deserted for 100 years. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth as a Roman colony, and at the time that Paul was here, it was a wealthy place. There were probably some 80,000 people living there, Uh, The theater held 15,000 people. It was doing well. But Corinth, above all, was known 
for its worst characteristic. Corinth was known for immorality. They made sex into a religion in Corinth. They had the temple of Aphrodite, the mythical Greek goddess of love. There were 1,000 so-called priestesses in this temple that were actually prostitutes that would descend upon the city every night. So this was a very challenging place for Paul to go and preach the gospel. And in the middle of this challenging atmosphere, he meets a, a Jewish couple who had come to faith in Christ and had come to Corinth. Verse 2 tells us the man's name was Aquila, his wife's name was Priscilla, they had come from Italy, and it was because Claudius had kicked out the Jews out of Rome. Verse 3 tells us that Paul goes to them. Uh, he was of the same trade as them. They, he stayed with them. They worked together. They were tent makers. Another way of saying leather workers. And what you see happen is that Paul develops a very close relationship with this couple. There's really a lifelong ministry partnership with this Christian couple. They work with Paul during his time in Corinth. They accompany him later to Ephesus. They, they later returned to Rome after the death of the Emperor Claudius. And what we also learn about Aquila and Priscilla is that they risk their lives for Paul. In Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, he asks the church to greet them, and he says, They're my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my sake. They risk their necks for my life. And he says, Not only I, but the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well because they had blessed the church. Jesus had used Priscilla and Aquila to encourage fellow believers and now he is using Priscilla and Aquila right here in Acts 18 to encourage Paul. Paul is doing something every day. Um, he is uh, working. He is making tents. But every Sabbath, verse 4 tells us, that he would go to, this, to the synagogue and he would persuade Jews and Greeks. So he would work all week and then on the Sabbath he would go and he would discuss the word of God as it relates to Jesus. He would take the Old Testament scriptures and show both Jews and Greeks how Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he would do this every week. Verse 5, though, tells us that Silas and Timothy, two faithful friends in Christ, arrive from Macedonia, and as soon as they arrive, he stops the tent making, and then 100% of the time now is preaching the word. The reason why is because they bring from Philippi a gift from the church that frees Paul up to do his primary calling. So they are a refreshment to Paul. They are an encouragement to him. They are working together for Jesus and the gospel. And so Paul would was testifying to Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That's what he was doing now all the time. He was, he was throwing himself into that work. He was occupied with it all the time. Because what you see here is that through Priscilla and Aquila, through Timothy and Silas, Paul is now encouraged to do what he is supposed to do. He's being encouraged by Jesus through faithful friends, through co-workers in the gospel, through kindred spirits. I hope you have some people in your life that you say, you know, this is a person that really encourages me in my faith and, and we really, we have a bond, really a, almost a ministry partnership in life because Jesus has basically blessed us with each other. I hope you have more than one. I hope you have many of people like that in your life. 
You need people like that in your life. We see Paul longing for his friends in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he tells them, he says, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left alone in Athens. So he's talking about what has, we have seen happen in Acts. And he said, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. They sent Timothy to encourage the church. And the reason why is so they would not be moved by these afflictions that they were encountering. In Romans 1.12, Paul is expressing his love for fellow believers and he says, I want to be with you so that we could each be encouraged by one another's faith. I hope that's what you're thinking when you come and meet with us on Sundays, that I, I'm really looking forward to seeing my brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be encouraged by each other's faith. I hope that in your Bible classes and home groups and and other settings that, you, that you're encouraged by one another's faith. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says, encourage one another and build each other up. That's our, that's our job as believers towards each other. Encourage one another and build each other up just in fact as you are doing. So here's a church that's being commended and saying, keep doing what you're doing. I'll say that to you as well. Keep doing what you're doing. Encourage each other and build each other up in the faith. Now, if you're not doing that in anyone's life, you need to start doing that because that's what the church is supposed to do in each other's lives, to be used by Jesus to encourage each other. Paul said in Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another every day while it is called today, while there are still days called today before Jesus comes back, while it is still called today, encourage one another so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, if you have an absence of faithful friends in Christ in your life, you run the risk of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You don't want that to happen in your life. You don't want that to happen to other people's lives. Now, if you know anything about friendship, you know it's a two-way street. To have one, you need to be one. A real friend, by the way, if you want to say, well, am I a real friend to people? Do I have real friends? A real friend is loyal. A real friend is trustworthy. They're confidential. You can actually tell them things and they don't go tell everyone. They're truthful with you. They will actually tell you the truth. And they're loving and kind, among other things. So you can basically test yourself. Am I loyal and trustworthy? Do I hold things confidential? Am I truthful? Am I loving and kind with people? Do I have those kind of people in my life? You need those kind of people in your life. You need to be that kind of person in someone else's life. They're the key to being used by Jesus as to be an encouragement for fellow believers. And it's a very simple key, but very profound and really tough to pull off. The key is, if you want to be used by Jesus to be an encouragement to other believers, you need to not look for it for yourself, but look to give it to others. You don't want to walk around and say, why is no one encouraging me? You want to say, how can I encourage other believers, even if no one comes my way to encourage me, and what you'll find is when you do that, you are encouraged, because you're encouraged each by each other's faith. If you are always looking for someone else to encourage you, you're, you're gonna be a me-centered person, a self-centered person, and you're always going to be disappointed because everyone is going to, to not meet your expectations, because you'll have these lofty expectations of what other people are supposed to do in your life. But instead, you should ask God, how can I be a blessing? I think that everyone who gathers and, and, and 
sees Grace Church of Orange as their home church, and, and by the way, the people are the church. It's not the place, it's the church. We are the church together. We are a local assembly of believers together. That any time we gather, that you would come with the prayer, Lord, who can I bless? Not who will bless me. And what you see here is that Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Silas and Paul himself are faithful Christian friends to each other and they're proactively supporting rather than looking to be supported. That's what we want to be in our lives, to become a cherished friend in someone's life that, will, that you will welcome others into your heart and life, that you won't stay closed off and that you will work together for Jesus and the gospel. So we see here that, that Jesus himself is providing for Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Silas, and Paul for them, and he encourages his servants through faithful friends. Now let's move on to verses six through eight because there's another thing you need to see here. There's another way that Jesus encourages his servants. It's through brand new believers. Brand new believers. Verse six, what happens is Paul has been presenting Jesus and people are opposing him. They're reviling him. This is a very sharp persecution. And it says that he shakes out his garments. The symbolic act of shaking out the garments was basically saying, I am breaking fellowship with you. I cannot be around you anymore. And he says some very strong words to them. He says, your blood is on your own heads. He says, I'm innocent. You're guilty. I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, I'm not sure if the person that you're working with for 20 years and you're praying for them to receive Christ and you're really trying to speak into the life if you want to say this to them. Once again, this proves to us that Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. You should not do this with everyone who reviles you and, and rejects the gospel message. But it did happen here. And the Holy Spirit inspired it. And, and Paul is saying, you have enough to come to faith in Christ and you are rejecting Jesus and so I'm now going to the Gentiles which these Jews should have known full well that the, the nations should hear of the Redeemer. That the nations should hear of the Deliverer. And so he leaves and verse seven tells us he leaves. But he doesn't go to the other side of town. He doesn't go out of town. He stays in town but he doesn't just go you know, across town let's say where he doesn't have to see them anymore. He goes right next door. Did you notice that? Verse seven, he leaves and goes to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, who lives right next door to the synagogue. So he leaves the synagogue and he just goes right next door to someone who wants to hear the gospel. And verse eight tells us that Crispus, the synagogue boss basically, believes in Jesus with his whole household. So here's the guy who is in charge of the place where all these people are reviling Paul. And he basically, as Paul is leaving, he's basically going, I'm going with him too. I'm believing this too. He's gonna to lose his position, he's gonna lose his reputation, and he's saying, well, it's worth it because I believe that Jesus Christ really is who Paul says he is. This is what happens when someone comes to faith in Christ in a setting where people are reviling Christ. They're gonna lose something. You're gonna lose something. Sometimes you, you have to be willing to lose that. What did Jesus say? You gain your whole life, you gain the world, you can lose your soul. 
And so, think about Crispus for a moment. You really could say he lost everything in this world. He lost his position. He lost his reputation. Everyone that he knew before is thinking badly of him. And he gains everything in the world to come. He, he comes to know the truth and he's set free by the truth. Think of those who reject Jesus and who he is. Think of the Jews that opposed Paul here. Think of pagans who opposed him in Athens mocked him and reviled him and blasphemed God. Or think of anyone you know who refuses to acknowledge who Jesus is. They live without hope. As strongly as they speak, as forcefully as they deny the truth, they live without hope. Mark Twain was a really good writer. But before his death, he wrote some very hopeless words. He said this, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The release comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanished from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Those are hopeless words from someone who, I guess, had no hope. The most important part of this passage that we are, are looking at today is who Jesus is and the hope he gives. Look back with me at verse five, what was Paul doing? What was Paul doing? He was testifying that Jesus is who he said he is, that the Christ is Jesus. He is saying the savior of the world is the historical Jesus who came to earth, who lived, who died, who was buried, who rose from the dead, and who promised to return for all who love him with blessing and for all who hate him with judgment. And Paul's message that he is preaching, he learned on the Damascus road from Jesus himself. So he is saying this, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. It's the same message the apostles were preaching. Acts chapter two, verse 36, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He pinpoints it. This is Jesus whom you crucified, the very one. Chapter 3, 18, what God performed, foretold by the mouth of the prophets that he, his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. We see in chapter 17, verse 3, that Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said to them over and over again, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He's the one. Later on in this chapter, chapter 18, verse 28, it says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. And the key, he showed by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That's what we need to do with people. Show by the word of God who Jesus is and why they need him. Tell them. Tell them. First, first John 3, 5 says that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. 
1 John 3.8 says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. People who do not believe are held captive by the devil to do his will. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came into the world. That's the reason for the incarnation. He came into the world to save sinners. He says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Have you seen the gospel's power firsthand? Seeing the gospel's power firsthand encourages your heart. Now, if you have never seen the gospel's power firsthand, you're not saved. You need to believe in Jesus who died for your sins in your place, was buried, rose again, and is coming again. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have you seen it but, but more than once? Have you seen the power of the gospel more than once? You know, whether you have a speaking or supporting role in the giving of the gospel, you want to be close enough to the actual preaching of the gospel that you realize what the part you're playing makes a difference. Every Christian should, should want to be a part of that. that. And to do that, you have to have a heart for the souls of others. You actually have to, again, not be self-centered. The Christian life is, is a, a life of continual repentance. And we ought to be always repenting of our self-centered nature, of our self-centered ways, of our self-centered me-first mentality that, that we all are susceptible to and we all gravitate towards. We need to care for the people, other people's eternal destiny and to do that we have to look beyond ourselves, really repent of our self-centeredness and then turn around and, and look towards others' needs, whether we're gonna be a faithful friend in Christ or whether we're going to lead people to Christ or encourage new believers. You think about when Paul was a brand new believer, he encouraged the church. His fervor for the Lord encouraged the church. They didn't all believe that he was really a believer though. If you remember that um, he needed some faithful friends in Christ, like one Barnabas exactly, specifically, who would come along and, and share his testimony with the church so that they would accept him. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3.21, our citizenship is in heaven. And he says a very interesting thing. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior because we are, spiritually speaking, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You're sitting here in California and we are, as believers, seated with Christ in the heavenlies spiritually. Physically, you are here. Spiritually, your citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, what you do on earth here is, is as an ambassador for Christ, you are representing Jesus Christ. It's as Colossians 3.23 says, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. If you're a believer, you, you are to serve Christ. And you might meet someone like a Titius Justus or a Crispus or even a Priscilla and Aquila or even a Paul and be encouraged by new believers, maybe even help to introduce them to Christ and help see them come to faith in Christ and then be encouraged by each other's faith. You know, we get so focused on ourselves that it's hard for us to get our eyes off ourselves and to see the needs of others. And interestingly, what happens is, for Paul here, you don't have a lot of new believers, but you have enough where that's taking his, his time. That's where he's putting his energies into. You know what helps you in life to uh, not be as self-centered? Have a brand new baby come into your house. <laughs> 
Because the brand new baby needs to be fed and clothed and cared for. And they can't do that on their own. Well, brand new baby Christians need to be fed spiritually and cared for. And they can't do that on their own. They need the church. So that actually is something that we can be encouraged by that Jesus brings to us to help us get our eyes off ourselves. New believers need care. Now let me say today, let's say you say, well, I don't have a ministry. I'm a believer, but I'm just kind of waiting for a ministry. Well, here's one for you. Find a new believer and help them grow in Christ. You will be blessed by it. You will grow too. Find someone to pour your life and the word of God into. What did Paul say to the Thessalonians? We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. They loved them so much that they wanted to pour their lives into them. And, and just like Paul said, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. So what we see here so far is that Jesus is encouraging Paul through faithful friends and brand new believers, gets his eyes off the, tr- off the trouble, off the hardship, But what comes next in this passage, this is the last thing we're gonna see here too, from verses nine through 17, this is by far the most significant aspect of this passage, of how Jesus encourages his discouraged servants so that they would persevere in his work. Look at me at verse nine, because what you're gonna see here is that Jesus encourages his servants through his presence and his promises, through who he is and his word. Verse nine basically tells us, and the Lord. Just look at those first three words, and the Lord. So Jesus is breaking in to this situation, and Jesus himself is speaking to Paul. And he tells him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now it might be easy to say, well, he's telling them that, he's telling him that like ahead of time in case he gets afraid. Like, Paul wouldn't be afraid. So he's just telling him, like, in case you're tempted to be afraid, don't, don't get afraid. That's not what Jesus is saying to Paul. When he says, do not be afraid, that's a present imperative with the negative, and it literally means stop doing what you're doing. It's to stop an action in progress. Jesus is saying, stop being afraid, Paul. And Paul's own testimony proves that to us. 1 Corinthians 2.3, here's what Paul said about when he went to Corinth. He said, my coming to you was in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. He admits it. But he also is able to tell them, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He didn't let his fear get in the way of preaching the gospel. He was, he was directed by God to this ministry in Macedonia, Right? It was very clear from God that this was what he was to do. But the mission had not really gone as maybe as one would hope. There were a lot of opponents. There was a lot of of persecution, a lot of people rejecting Jesus, a lot of people not wanting the gospel bridge that was being clearly presented to them. You think about Athens. Uh, Some people came to faith, but most of the people held him in contempt. So he must have been discouraged as he went from Athens to Corinth. And discouragement is very real for those who are serving Christ. You might be discouraged today. I like the story of Thomas Edison who tried many times to find the right filament for the incandescent electric light bulb. And as the story goes, he tried something like 10,000 attempts 
And as the story goes, after the 10,000th failure, he comes home at night and his wife says to him, aren't you discouraged? And his answer is, discouraged? Certainly not. I now know 10,000 ways that won't work. He saw himself as one step closer to the real thing. You know how many times in the Bible God says to his people, do not fear? And by the way, it's an urban legend that there's 365 of them, okay? There's more than enough for every day, though. There's over 100. You, you search, how many times does God say, do not fear? You know, I'm with you, do not fear. And it's over 100 times, so you have a lot to take with you every single day, where God says in his word to his people, which means it's to you if you're a believer, do not fear. Like Isaiah 41.10. Now there's a verse that in a time in my life when I was battling fear of flying, in 1991, uh, excuse me, 1999, 2000, I took my, five, my then five-year-old son, Michael, who's now 21, and Isaiah 41.10 and flew all the way to Colorado and then to Nashville and back. And, and that verse, I'm serious, I was singing it, I was saying it over and over and over again. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says this to us. Do not fear. Jeremiah 1.8, he says, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You should believe this if you're fearing anything. Verse 9, he tells him, go on speaking. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Don't be silent. Verse 10, I am with you. No one's going to attack you to harm you. I have many people in this city who are mine. You know, there's going to be fellow believers to, to help in this, in this spiritual battle that's going on. You know, in the Old Testament, the phrase being with had very special meaning. It signifies God's active assistance to his people. So Jesus says, I am with you. What he's telling Paul is, I am actively helping you right now. You need to know that right now. Whatever discouragement or fear or doubt you're going through right now, as you attempt to serve Christ, you need to know that Jesus is with you and he is actively assisting you right now in, in real time. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that uh, mind-blowing? Isn't that an amazing gospel truth for us to know that Jesus said, I am with you always? We're not alone. And... and the next thing we see in this passage, verses 11 through 17, is just an example of, of what Jesus said to Paul coming about. Just, just one example of it. Remember, he said to him, do not fear. Keep on speaking. No one's going to attack you to harm you. I have many people in this city. Okay? So look what happens. Verse 11. He stays 18 months. He teaches the word of God. Uh, verse 12. Gallio is the proconsul, which is basically just a Roman official, a political official, a governor, and the Jews attack Paul. Interesting that Jesus said, no one's going to attack you to harm you. So they bring Paul before the tribunal, and in verse 13, they're telling lies about him. They said, he's getting people to, you know, worship God contrary to how God wants to be worshiped. It's absolutely false. It's a lie about him. They said, he's persuading people. He's misleading people. He's a fraud. He's a deceiver. Not true. Verse 14, Paul's about to speak in his own defense. 
And look what happens. Gallio, this pagan leader, says to the Jews, hey, I don't want any of this. You know, he didn't do some vicious crime here. You're, if, if he did do that, I'd listen to you. I'd tolerate you, but I'm not gonna be patient with you because verse 15 says to us, it's just about words and names and everything. You figure this out. I am not gonna judge about this. So he drives them away, verse 16, and he says, you figure it out, it's not my deal. So verse 17, they all seize, and poor Sosthenes, <laughs> this guy is just in the wrong place at the wrong time. They seize Sosthenes, he's the new ruler of the synagogue, he, took, he takes Crispus's place, Crispus is a brand new believer, so now Sosthenes is the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him up, right in front of the whole tribunal, and Gallio just kind of turns, turns, turns the other way and doesn't, doesn't do a thing about it. You know, poor, poor guy, gets all beat up. But here's, here's what happened here. If Gallio had ruled against Paul, Christianity would have been outlawed in the Roman Empire. God saw that it didn't happen. God made sure it didn't happen. You see, it's interesting, faithful friends and brand new believers can only get you so far. Even if they're given, they're given by Jesus to bless your life. But Jesus himself must be your heart's true resting place. You can't put your trust in your friends. You can't put your trust in, in someone who's gonna prop you up. You've got to have Jesus himself as your heart's true resting place. I hope that's where your heart is resting today because Jesus himself encourages his servants who are discouraged through his own presence and his own promises, who he is and what he says. You see this through the Old Testament too. First Samuel chapter 30, David, King David's greatly distressed. Everyone's gonna stone him. The people are bitter in their souls, and David, it says, strengthened himself in the Lord. So he, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He had fellowship with the Lord. He remembered God's words. You think of Joshua, who was encouraged by God, and he's taking Moses' place, and Joshua 1.8 says, here's God's word here. Here's God's promises. The book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, and here's the presence of God, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I, I think of God encouraging Elijah and exhorting Elijah, 1 Kings 19, where Elijah says, I'm the only one left who's worshiping you, and, and God just says, no, you're not. <laughs> and just like when he says to Paul, I have many people in this city, you're not alone, I'm with you, others are here. So what the call is to us to do is to abide in the presence of, of Jesus and his word. Do what God says. Don't fear. Know that he's with you. You will never regret a moment spent in the presence of God praying and, and getting to know him through his word. What does Romans 15 tell us? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, the word of God encourages us that we might have hope. And then he prays, may the God of encouragement and endurance grant you to live in such harmony with one another, there's faithful friends, in accord with Jesus Christ, that you together may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the God of endurance and encouragement. I hope you know him as such. Many people who serve Jesus get worn down. As we wrap this up, I just wanna say, this might be you. Today, you might say, you know, I am worn down, I am worn out, I am down in the dumps, I am discouraged, I am doubting, I am even fearful, and 
I'm here to tell you that Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus is with you. You have no need to be afraid. And we are not propping ourselves up with wishful thinking here. We are clinging to the objective truth of the word of God that God upholds us by himself. He encourages you so that you can persevere in his work. Know this today, please. Please know this. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through right this very moment. And he understands the discouragement you face. And he is more than able to accomplish what concerns you today. Don't grow weary in well-doing, Galatians 6, 9, for in due time you will reap if you do not grow weary. Hebrews 12, 3, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And praise God that he reassures you through faithful friends and brand new believers and his, most importantly, his presence and his promises who he is and what he says. That's enabling you then to be a faithful friend in Christ to people, proactively look to support other people rather than looking to be supported. Help brand new believers grow in Christ, find someone to pour your life and the word into, and then abide in the presence of Christ and his word because he is with you, therefore you can be encouraged. John Wesley died when he was 88 years old on Wednesday, March 2nd, 1791. As he was dying, his friends were gathered around him and he, he took his hands and, and put them in theirs and said repeatedly to them, farewell, farewell. But his last words were these. He summons all his remaining strength and he cries out, the best of all is God is with us. And, and he lifts up his arms and he repeats the same thing. He says, the best of all is God is with us. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is with us always. David Livingstone endured many years of hardship and trial and danger in Africa, and at one point, the University of Glasgow gave him an honorary doctorate. On the day they gave it to him, here's what he said. What supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude towards me was always uncertain and often hostile was this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, on those words, I staked everything. They never failed. May the same be true of us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you encourage us so that we would persevere in your work and thank you that we don't do this on our own, but that we are able to persevere because you persevere us in Christ's strength and for his glory. And we praise you. In his name, amen.